Welcome to the Road to Cinema podcast with screenwriter Harris Goldberg, the writer behind the Rob Schneider comedy Deuce Bigelow Male Gigolo, as well as the critically acclaimed Matthew Perry dramedy Numb, which Harris wrote and directed. We'll discuss Harris's early career working for Disney as an in-house screenwriter, his process for pitching a story idea to executives, and we'll delve into various aspects of the movie business as well as the best way to have a working relationship with a manager. Also, the evolution of the movie business since the 1990s and a discussion of Harris's UCLA Extension class, which he also teaches with our other Road to Cinema guest, screenwriter David Garrett. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, visit jogroadproductions.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, to see some new interviews with Don Cheadle, Hewan McGregor, and Moon Zappa, daughter of Frank Zappa, discussing the new documentary, Eat That Question, Frank Zappa in his own words. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Jog Road, Instagram at Jog Road Productions, and like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions. Also, don't forget to write a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join screenwriter Harris Goldberg as we discuss his working process with a writing partner and his early days in stand-up comedy. So I was reading on your IMDb page that you actually uh, were a tennis player growing up. You competed against John McEnroe. Is that accurate? Or Yeah, when I was... Uh, well, first of all, yeah, I was ranked second uh, in Canada when I was a junior. Like, I was 18. Yeah. Okay, now the thing is it's a lot different in Canada than here because it's, it, it's a lot easier to be good in Canada. But that's what I wanted to be was a tennis player. And so at the Canadian Open, they, uh, they give you a wild card if you're from Canada. So I, got, I was the wild card, and they, I, my first round was against John McEnroe, who at that time was like a college player. He was, just won the NCAAs. So everybody knew about him. Yeah. But we didn't know how good he was because he was kind of pudgy, and we could see him practicing before the matches, and he had these weird strokes and everything but he was he kills me I think I got like four points off and that that was the turning point when I realized I'm not good enough to make it <laughs> so it was really had uh, had your brother Daniel Goldberg already started his career at that point yeah he had um, he had done uh, meatballs ah. with, and which that Bill Murray movie which is a you know and he had done I think he was just finishing the script for Stripes oh wow that he, he was writing with his partner at the time which who was Lenny Bloom and then um, and then that went on to you know do pretty well yeah, yeah. Uh, was he any part of sort of inspiring you to work in the movie business to write well if, if I mean personally I really looked up to my brother he's 11 years older so I, I was I, I don't want to say I was in awe of him but I probably was because he's very, he was a very, he's very um, demonstrative guy, quiet. He he had this, he had this bizarre success at that age, you know. So to see movies that were, you know, you just go what? So yeah, I think I wanted to be like him. He played drums, I played drums. We both liked the Beatles, you know. But athletically, I was always very athletic. He wasn't very athletic. So I thought, well, tennis would be my thing. Although I was always into entertainment, like I did stand-up when I was 15, and I wrote for radio shows, so it was a natural. Yeah. But I never thought that I could... Yeah, I had put him on a pedestal, for sure. What was, like, the first thing that you ever tried writing, if you remember? I think I wanted... I, there was a, a 
comedy series of comedy clubs in Canada called Yuck Yucks, which is like the improv here. And I thought, you know, I was always the class clown kind of thing. Okay. So I thought, oh, I'll do stand-up comedy. So when I was like 13 or 14, uh, I used to do magic shows when I was a kid. So I was really into magic and Harry yeah. Houdini. No, I saw the magic trick you did before we started recording, which was uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, if, yeah <laughs> if, if anyone's listening and they saw it, they would be half amazed. Um, so I guess, yeah, I did. St- I, the first stuff I did was writing stand-up. And then I, I, would, I was too young to actually go into the club, so I'd lie about my age and I'd go up. But it was very hard. It was very scary stand-up. And I thought I knew very quickly. Yeah. That I don't know if this to is... To me, that's one of the most difficult things to do um, because you're really, you don't have anything, like even like a musician has the instruments they're playing in the song. I mean, when you're doing stand-up, it's just you. That's it. There's nothing else to protect you in a way. Yeah, and it's also, you can delude yourself because when you're funny in front of your friends... Or you're funny because, like, if I'm talking to you and you say, and we're in a social situation, I'm sort of watching and riffing off the situation. So, yeah. so it's kind of, but when you actually have to present, be funny in front of people who are expecting you to be funny, whole other ball. So I would say <laughs> stuff, and people were like, what? you know, and, and so you're making personal references and stuff, and that, and I realized quickly that the really good stand ups really hone their act. I mean, that's why they only have, like, you know, they'd work a year on honing one act because everything, the rhythm and the jokes and everything was very finely tuned. And I was so, I don't know if it was, I think I was just naive. I thought I could go out there and sort of riff around and, you know, and just make comments. And yeah. I remember that documentary uh, Comedian with Jerry Seinfeld, and you see him, like, prepping his act, like, from these little clubs and really just testing every little beat out. Yeah. And he would just, you know have no uh, sensitivity just throw jokes away start from the beginning yeah nerve-wracking too because when you bomb you bomb uh when you started you know really delving into screenwriting did you ever show any of your work to your brother did you ever have him give you notes or no he was advice he, or? He, he wasn't very um I, I don't think he actually wanted me to go i think he it bothered him that i i went into the business and so he never read anything or he didn't really um um, I don't think he really helped, really. I think it bothered him that I treaded on his environment. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I don't blame him, actually, because... Uh, and maybe I did go into it because of him. I don't know. I, it's a sort of a thing between... It's a therapy question, I think. <laughs> uh, so do you remember sort of the first time you came out to L.A. and you wanted to sort of, you know, venture into writing something on your own and, you know, were you, I mean, having that stand-up background, were you focused on being a comedy writer? Was that sort of your... No, I, I was in Canada and I'd given up uh, uh, stand-up and I partnered up with um, another guy who was a very good writer. His name's Tom Nursel. I'm still friends with him today. And Tom was a very good comedy writer, very funny guy. And uh, he had written a script that I really liked. And we partnered up in Canada, and we raised some money from the Canadian government to come out to Los Angeles for a couple weeks to try and, like, they give you this... Like um, a stipend, almost, yeah. yeah. So we came out to L.A., and I, as soon as I got to L.A., I I was like a tiger out of a... Like, I went, this is... So I would just call up, uh, I'd look in the Hollywood Reporter, and I'd find out who the studio heads were or the executives. You were just cold calling people. Cold calling. The, oh. And he would, he would um, we stayed at the Oakwood Apartments, I remember. And, and oh, the one by Universal yeah. uh, City? Okay. Burbank. Yeah. And we shared a, um, 
bachelor pad, so we had just had our mattresses on the thing, and I'd wake up and I'd be in my like boxer shorts and I'd be on the phone, and I was just relentless. I just was he. I don't remember this, but he would say, he, he would say I couldn't believe that you would. I would just call up directly and do whatever I could to get us in the room. And so the goal at that time was to go in and pitch your script and get that bought. And yeah, and so and Tom was, a, was a, a little more shy than I was, so he didn't like to do that. But I liked the, uh, you know, I didn't seem to have a, um, a, I didn't seem to have a worry about, I wasn't intimidated by, you know, executives or, or the hierarchy of the business. I just, I, I thought, you know, how can I bob and weave around this? Yeah. So I said to Tom, and I didn't think of myself as a writer then, by the way. I, th- I thought it was more like, I thought it was okay, but I did, certainly didn't think I was very talented. But I said to Tom, why don't, let's put both our names on your script and I'll try and get us a writing job. And he was like, great. And so eventually we got a, a meeting with a guy named Maddie Simmons, who, was, who ran National Lampoon at the time. And, and Maddie was the producer on Animal House. Mm-hmm. And I kind of used Ivan Reitman's, who produced Animal House. I said, oh, I'm his partner's brother. And uh, anyway, I got the meeting. Yeah. Sort of like, oh yeah, you can come meet me, kid. So Tom and I went in, and I, I don't remember what I said, but I kind of just schmoozed the guy and told him, you know, what, what a great guy. He, I knew all about him. Like, he started Diners Club, which was a, like an American Express. Oh, the old credit card. Old credit card. Uh, yeah. So I was going, that's amazing, and you're like a brilliant guy. And, and he said, you know, I, I got this one idea, and I'm looking for a couple of young writers. Yeah. And uh, so I got us that job, and we left, and I think we got paid... I think we got paid 60 grand, which was more money than we had ever seen in our lives. And from that gig, we used that to get to William Morris. We had the same meeting with William Morris. They really liked that we were like from Canada. I think they thought there was an osmosis factor because my brother was very successful then. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, maybe the kid brother has something. So they signed us. So we came back from that trip with an agency behind us, a job, huh. and then that was, and I was like, well, we should do this. Just come out to LA, live here permanently, and start up. Yeah, so that was the beginning. Uh, so right after that, uh, so what was sort of your guys' sort of game plan in terms of writing? I mean, were you just sort of going out on writing assignments? Were you kind of developing your own well, ideas at that point? We we then got it. It was in the the writer strike in '88 was happening. It was a writer strike, I think, that was going on. So because we were Canadian. Um, we got hired on a, we signed with this agency that got us a job on a TV show uh, as the story editors, which I hated. I hated TV. I, I didn't like, like other people, I didn't like other writers. Being what is, um, I was wondering, like a story editor on a TV show, like what is the responsibility there usually? Well, it was a small staff, so we would kind of be the guys to look at the story ideas, make sure they fit into the template of what the show was. We would oversee the other the other writers, the younger writers who, you know, to uh, we would rewrite a lot, you know, and um, and then we'd have to take notes from the showrunners, so the notes you know the notes would yeah. come to us. So we were kind of like the middlemen between the writing the actual writing staff, and the executive producers, and I, I hated it. I hated it. I, I didn't like the I didn't like the politics. I didn't work well with it. I didn't. I like to be the. I like to run the show, not in a cocky way. I just. I don't think I'm very good like playing with, 
uh, others, so to speak. Yeah, I, I it's would, interesting, like in the TV environment, like because everybody is sort of working on the same script at once, yet the credit for the particular episode is just sort of, sometimes I think it's like loosely given. Do yeah, like those, those, let's say you're on the staff. Yeah. Like, you know, we're both on the same staff. So they would say, uh, okay, this is going to be your episode. So you get the credit up Sole front. credit just written by me, that's it. Yeah, but as part of that, you know, you write the first draft and it goes through the whole, you know, everybody else puts in So when it comes out of the machine, it's sort of everybody's hands are on it, yet yeah. it's just only yeah. the sole writing credit there. Yeah, like I, I wrote some episodes on other shows where every word was changed and I, and I got the credit, single credit, and I didn't even recognize the show, the episode. <laughs> Because it, because other the, the showrunners had completely rewritten it and stuff like that, so I didn't love that. I like getting the check for it, yeah. but I thought it was. I wanted to do more or something, or I, I wanted to. I, I just was frustrated all the time. So, um, so then what we did was we went and wrote a spec script, very personal spec script that we really liked, and that got us a lot of attention. And out of that. Um, we got a four-picture deal at Disney. Oh wow! From that, just because the material was so good, and everything changed after that. So we were suddenly like the flavor of the month, which I didn't know at the time what that meant. But it was like we were sort of in that spot where you're young enough, you hadn't failed yet, you've got a script that everybody seems to collectively like. So they're going, these are the guys. So let's lock them up. And then for the next six, seven years, we were just getting every assignment you could imagine. So out of that Disney deal, was it, because uh, I know there was like I'll Be Home for Christmas you were credited on, and then also I think Deuce Bigelow was also Disney, well, through like their Touchstone uh, label. Yeah, although that was another section. Like Tom and I, we did a lot of Disney movies where they were just, we were the go-to guys. So they'd say, like I'll Be Home for Christmas was originally an Adam Sandler movie. Really? And then, and then they had a deal with... Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Uh, so they said, can you rewrite that for him? So they made it like a college kid and yeah. that whole dynamic. And we said, we don't want to do that. <laughs> so then they put us on the Mighty Ducks. Uh, the so first we, Mighty the Ducks? The second one. Oh, the second so one. So we wrote the sequel. Uh, and then, I think it was the sequel, or was it the third one? Well, it was, it was one of those. We had two weeks to write it, I remember. The whole script. And write it from scratch. From there wasn't scratch. any previous uh, yeah. script out there. No. Wow. But I remember they, they we we really had a home at Disney. Like they would screen the the first one for us, and the you know we had the theater to ourselves. They serviced <laughs> dinner, they wherever you want to go to write it. I mean, we were really we took it for granted, but we loved it. Wow. Because they really treated us great. And um, um, what was I going to say? So so that and and during that time they put us onto another film and then they put us on and we just took every assignment because and at this time Tom and I were starting to fray because I stayed here and he liked to keep going back to Canada so we started to the big mistake looking back is we started to uh, write over the phone really and, and there was no Skype then or whereas today I think even on final draft you can kind of like connect your documents and all that stuff so I imagine back then that must have been insanely difficult yeah, it was like dot matrix printers. Um, <laughs> it took like, I remember it took like 45 minutes to send a half a script over the internet. Mm. So, so that, it, I think that was really bad for us to separate. And it's because when I was here, I was like a caged lion, like always looking for other deals. And When you're uh, working in a writing team, like you were, are you sort of looked at as sort of one entity? Like is your deal basically 
for the t- like there's no like separate uh, you mean for the way. deal? The actual yeah, so like you're really just sort of bound to that person yeah. in a sense. Yeah, 50-50 down the line. And, and that's the problem. If you start off getting success with a partner, you're seen as a writing team. So if you go off on your own, they never take you. You have to re- reinvent yourself, which was a, a bit, But back then, I really, you know, I really needed Tom. I mean, I, I did not have confidence in myself as a writer. I thought I was a really good editor. Uh, but I, I didn't have confidence in it. What was uh, your process at that time? I mean, were you sort of, I mean, would one person start off with sort of like a very rough draft and then maybe you go in and edit it or what was kind of the... We, during the initial stuff, when we had the initial success, we'd both sit in front of the computer for... Simultaneously. Simultaneously. And it was yeah. great. We'd smoke cigars and, you know, we would riff off lines and it was literally going through ourselves, uh, everything. And then when we started to split up, I'd start to write scenes, and Tom would write the bulk of them, and then I would edit them. But he, I, I thought that when I look back on it, he was very—he was much broader than I was, and I was much more at a deeper kind of uh, uh, more—I don't know if it's what you want to call it—heartfelt, or I just wanted to say more. And yeah. so we, it started to clash the styles, I think, and and uh, and I started to become frustrated. Because I wanted more, and so it was. I started to separate, and that's when uh, things started changing. After, and I went on to the next phase. What was sort of that next phase? That uh... well, I my older brother had done a movie called, written and directed a movie called Feds, with Rebecca De Mornay and uh, Mary Gross, and it it didn't do that well in the, the box office. And after that experience. Um, he asked me if I wanted to be his partner, and he wanted to leave Ivan Reitman at the time. So for you two to become writing partners yeah. on your own? which to me was like, to be honest, I was over the moon. I thought, that's, my life is set. I loved you know, pleasing him. I loved working with my older brother. And so Tom and I split over that, which I think was very hard on Tom, but I was so enamored with the idea of working with my brother. And then we brought in my brother's wife, who was, who was a pretty, she's a pretty big producer. She'd done Waterworld, produced Waterworld, um, The River Wild with um, um, Meryl Street. Meryl Street. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, now she's like a real, does all these huge movies and stuff. So the three of us formed a company. So I was in heaven. So I started working with my brother. Which was, and we got really close, closer than I'd ever been, which I loved. I loved the security of that. And then um, we managed to get a couple of deals at Universal to write two projects, and I was even happier because I thought this is it. And as soon as we got those two deals, he decided that he didn't, I, I think anyway, that it was, he didn't like the entrepreneurial aspect of working, you know, that we, that, because when you're not, when you're with someone like Ivan Reitman, Every project you do pretty much is a go picture. It's like working for a juggernaut. And I think he missed that. So uh, it wasn't enough, I think, just to write these projects. So he decided to go back. So I was sort of left with these two universal projects. So he was back at Ivan Reitman's company, and then you were on your own. Yeah, now when I look back on it, I was probably devastated because I didn't have Tom, so I didn't have the security of Tom. I didn't have the security of my brother, and I had these projects to write, and and I had to write them on my own. So I 
took on these projects and wrote for the first time in my life by myself with no confidence but with an inkling that maybe I had something to, to say so I wrote these projects and, and these were writing assignments or these were these were on spec or original pitches ah. that we went in and at that time when you know you could sell a pitch uh, I kind of I, I think I kind of had a good reputation in the room set selling pitches not like today where you have to you have to package everything like in those days, which was 1995, six, um, you could go in there if you had the log line of a movie, basic structure of it. Yeah. Whereas today you would say, well, come in with cast attachments and a director maybe and then another producer. And yeah, or even some money too. You might say I've got partial financing and that's where we're at now. Right. So you can't just like going in with just like a story idea, nothing else is sort of a very uh, difficult mountain to climb. Yeah, in fact, all the guys who ran the studios, I would say most of the guys that I, I'm still friends with, that would buy those pitches, um, that you would sell them in, in the room, they're all roving producers now, like trying, you know, desperately trying to put projects together, and they, they really have no power. No, they're just trying to find financing, because mm -hmm. that's the only thing, that, or, or cast. Yeah, well, I mean, there are so fewer uh, studio films being made now. I mean, everything is sort of, you know, they want to just do big investments, you know, big uh, comic book films or everything else. So everything else is sort of going to television. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a reason for that. Uh, but, film. Yeah. 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 Um, so what is your style for pitching or how did it develop at that time? I mean, did you have sort of like, uh, like I've talked to some people, they have note cards and they just read off the note card or they just, they perform scenes from the movie or what was sort of your... Uh, I, I always try to personalize it as much as possible. So I would go in, let's say I was pitching you. So I'd, I'd try to find out everything I can about you. You know, what do you like? What do you don't like? What hobbies do you have? Oh, you're a golfer. Oh, you're this or that. And so first I'd go in, I wouldn't use notes. I'd make it as relaxed as possible. And I'd go in and I'd try to loosen it up. Uh, so more I'd, conversational. Yes. Way. Yeah. And, I, and, and my goal was always, okay, the end game was, this is a piece of business. I have to make them understand that this idea isn't something, not only do I want to write it, but it's also, in the end, they have to, I want them to think, I can make money off this idea. Because yeah. that's, that's where they're going to go to their higher so how can it benefit them in yes. the long run? Always, yeah. always how to solve their pain. So I'm thinking, I'm putting myself in their shoes, and I'm going, okay, they, they have to like this idea, they want to say no, they probably have to pass it on to other executives, I got to make it, you know, buzzwords so they can. It's easy to remember. Um, I want them to think that there's box office appeal here. Maybe there's a couple movies in it, like all that stuff. So I go in and then I would, I would entertain them first. So I would try to make you like me. Yeah. So whatever it takes, you know, I, I, I tell a story uh, that might be interesting or uh, something where they'd laugh and they'd loosen up, and then I'd say how I came up with the idea. I said, you know, I, I was thinking about, and so what that does is it, it puts in their mind, oh, this is universal, this idea. So I would say, you know, I always wondered why do people, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that, so now it, they're sort of subconsciously going, okay, that's interesting. And then and then I would go into the kind of the quick law. I, I go, imagine if, and I thought, imagine if, and then I give them the one-two punch. So if they like that, and I can see in their face that they go, hmm, that's interesting, I try to get to the point where I want them to ask questions as, much, as fast as possible. So you wouldn't even jump into like act one, act two, act three. You're just giving them the basic log line. This is what the movie is. And then if 
they sort of reach for that bait, then you'll start delving in more in a way. Yeah, because I figure if you if if I tell you an idea, and you start asking me questions about it, now you're engaged. Yeah. So now now not only are uh, am I giving you the information that I already know, which is what the story is, because I have an- hopefully have answers to it. But you're thinking, oh, you know, I could go. Well, that's a great idea. You know, you know, I, I can now get you uh, engaged in wanting to be involved in the story, as opposed to me pitching you something. Yeah. Where you, you, you know, even if it's and now great, they want to know more. They're like, tell me more, tell me more. And then the more you hold back, the more curious they become. So yes. the interest sort of grows from that point in a way. Yeah, and then they're part of the team, and then and then they'll say, I really like this. Let me. And as soon as they say that, I go, okay, that's business. That's a we have a possible deal here. But I, always, I found that whenever I would hear pitches or pitch where it's, I'm pitching the story beat by beat or you know, act by act, they would just glaze over. They really would. <laughs> now some guys can do that, I guess. I was just not very great at that. So. What was, um, because I know you would eventually do Numb, which is a very personal film for you, what was the balance between you know, taking on you know, writing assignments or pitching things that you knew were sort of palatable to the marketplace versus doing things that were you know, purely sort of your own, you know, purely your own voice, purely your own like artistic intention versus sort of looking at it, sort of all business, like what can sell, what can't? Well, that's a good question, actually. Um, I'd done a bunch of writing assignments where the, I thought the movies were really good and they were close and I got paid really well for them, but they were a ton of work and I would I'd do a lot of notes on them from producers and stuff and they would get close, but they never got made and I found that frustrating. Or a couple of them got made, like for instance, Without a Paddle, I did for Paramount. And um, the movie came out, it did well, made like, I don't know, I think it made 60 million or something at the box office back then, but it only cost 18 million to make. Yeah. But I hated the movie. I thought it, it, I, they completely changed what the original script was. And I, was, I thought, I didn't even see the whole movie, to be honest. <laughs> I've never, it was on last night. On, on was that the first time you had seen some of it? Or? Yeah, and I couldn't even get through it. Because ah. I remember how good it was. Like the, I thought it was great, the first the drafts. That, that, so at that point, I was going through, a, to be honest, a rough time. I was having some... Um, I think I was burned out. I was having a lot of some. I was having a lot of anxiety, and I had a lot of personal stuff going on. So, I decided to just. I, I said, if I could only write one more movie, what would it be? So I started to write about what was going on in my life, and I. It was more journalistic than anything, but I enjoyed it because it was sort of therapeutic, cathartic. So I started. Uh, I think the, I, the, I wrote the first line, and I, and it just all came out, and that became numb. And when it was finished, I thought, well, I'm not going to show this to anyone. No one's going to make this movie. It's way too... But it was very personal. And it was sort of, if you want to call it, a, you know, if someone has a voice, this was as you know, close to that as possible. So amazingly, I slipped it out to a couple of people, and the reaction was people really liked it. And then this guy, this producer, Paul Schiff, who had done... Uh, um, what was that the first Wes Anderson movie? You know, the kid at school, Rushmore. Oh, Rushmore, yeah. Yeah, he loved it, and he called me. He goes, "I got to do this movie," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and he, and then he got it to CAA, and then I got a call from Matthew Perry one day, out of the blue, and he said, "This is Matthew Perry." I was like, "What?" And I didn't really watch Friends or anything, but I knew who he was, and he read the script and he loved it. And he said, "I have to meet you." And so I met with him, and he want, he said I got to do this movie because I guess he saw in the movie things that were um, 
happening to him as well in his own Were life. you pitching at all as something that you would direct, or was that? Yeah, I said, I said on this one, I said, well, first of all, I didn't know this was a movie until Matthew came on board, but I said, look, yeah. uh, I'm not going to do this unless I direct it, and, it's, and I have final cut, and, which was a bravado thing to say, <laughs> but, but I said it because... I, I, it was so it was so personal. I mean, it had my my family in it, and my relationships, and my everything, and it was. And I didn't even know if I wanted to do it because I thought, God, this is embarrassing. Some of this stuff. So I decided that was sort of a. a I'm not, otherwise, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And I I think I was burned out from these other, seeing these other movies I'd done. You know, sort of changed during the process with other directors. So we got the money, math. You know, we went. I got Final Cut. Uh, and made the movie, and uh, you know it. It it, uh, it was very satisfying because we premiered it at Tribeca, and it was uh, it had a visceral reaction with people. You know, yeah. I think they identified with the uh, angst of the guy. Yeah. So Matthew Perry, that's someone else who I feel like is very underutilized. Like until um, until Numb, and also I think at that time he was also doing that Aaron Sorkin show, Studio Sixty. Yeah. It's like you know he has a lot of range that people really don't give him credit for yeah. beyond you know what he did on Friends. Yeah, I, 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 Matthew, I, I, when he wanted to do it, I actually originally said, you know, I don't think you're the guy. But I said, why don't we hang out for a couple of weeks? Because, I, because you're going to have to do stuff that's not... Yeah. I've worked with so many of these Saturday Night Live guys, and they were all very talented, but they all had sort of a, a, um, a bag of tricks they would go to as a sort of defense mechanism. So they'd always do the same thing over and over. So Dana Carvey would do his shtick. Schneider would do his shtick, you know, yeah. Mike Myers would do his shtick, and, and, and Matthew would do his stuff on Friends. And I said, you can't do this in this movie. I want you to do nothing. And uh, after a couple of weeks of hanging out, I realized this guy's really talented. He's just afraid to go there. We're not afraid, but he didn't, I, maybe he didn't feel comfortable going yeah. there. Well, it's almost, I think some actors feel like, you know, if they're so successful or they're so, you know, identified one way, if they branch out from that, it's almost like this fear of, you know, will people like that? Will people be open to even seeing me in that type of position? Yeah, dead on. Yeah. Dead on. So, so that was very satisfying, although I have to say, so that started me on the, the next phase, which was, you know, I want to write, I want to do projects I really am personally interested in and I want to direct because I like the directing experience. I now for Numb, that was the first sign that you had ever directed anything out I directed the most uh, part. one okay. short that, that did pretty well the year before with Michael Madsen and Robert Forrester. Oh, it was a comedy or a drama? It was kind of a comedic uh, action thing. It was, uh, oh. I was hired to do it. Somebody had written it, and I got the guy, the cast on. I got Robert to do it, who I knew, Forrester. I got Michael. He's a great Mike. actor, Robert Forrester He's, from uh, Jackie Brown. I remember. Yeah, he was great. Beverly D'Angelo, I got her in it, and oh. so that was that was my first experience actually with you know directing. But I seemed to have sort of a. Uh, I looked at it like coaching, like I kind of looked at oh I got all these people that are you know have problems and stresses and I got to just corral them to do their best work. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's, I can do that. That's good. Did you ever find that, is it ever difficult to have objectivity, especially when you're directing something that's your own script and you sort of have envisioned it for so long, you know, sort of arriving on the set or even down the line editing it? Sure, it's always hard. You're always, yeah, I think you're, yeah, I always wrestle with, like, is this, you know, is this, am I being too precious here? Is this, is this too, uh, too indulgent? 
do I need this? Do I need this uh, scene here or this bit here? Am I am I in love with this performance? Uh, yeah, I think it's very helpful to have people you trust just to sort of keep you on track. Although having said that, I, I kind of know what I like too. Yeah. Like I, there there are things that I definitely like in movies that I that I feel strongly about, but um, and things I don't like. But yeah, I'm always open for. Uh, I really love people to sort of get, like their reactions. And, yeah. So from that point on, were you really focused on I'm going to you know sort of do things that are more personal to me? You know, try to sort of branch out more into directing. Was that? Yeah. Then I then I wrote another movie that I directed uh, after that, which was another sort of personal story, and I had a good cast with it. Patrick Fugit's in it, and Jennifer Morrison, and Karen Gillan, who's a, in Guardians of the Galaxy, and a bunch of people, but. Well, I realized that making these smaller movies, the sales aspect of them was so hard that I said, okay, I don't want to go through this again, like spend all, a year of my life or a year and a half making these movies, and then they, nobody sees them. So that's when I decided, okay, I, I want to write, what's the biggest movie I can think of that I want to write? And that's when I wrote this latest action movie that, that, uh, that I'm doing now, which is a big, big movie, but it's, it's also a big idea. And there's franchise possibilities in it. So. And do you plan on directing it as well? Yeah, or? I'm attached to direct that one too. So, um, uh, so having said that, it's a fine line between. You know, I think you got to write what you love, but also put it in today's world. You got to put it in a, a package, that has the best chance of, of being made too. Because I think there's an awful lot of smaller movies that are great. But if nobody sees them, you know, you got it in your back pocket for your family or friends or whatever. Yeah. And it, well, I also feel like now there's just there's so much noise, you know, like it's really hard to capture people's attention. Um, and now a lot of movies aren't even going out theatrically anymore. They're just sort of in this VOD uh, uh, abyss. And, yeah. you know, so that's, you know. I mean, think um, about it. If you go on, if you go, if you're at home and you look at on demand or whatever. Yeah. And you see all these movies with <laughs> big stars and you go, I've never even heard of this. You know, and these are movies that didn't make it theatrically or, or they went out for, uh, I mean, think about it. You go on Rotten Tomatoes, you see all the movies that come out this weekend, and that's it. One weekend, it's over. Yeah. So, you know, all this time and effort for, I mean, it was, I missed the days when a movie, you know, you'd have two months to be out there or a month to be out there. And, and you'd have time to kind of milk, you know, give it a shot. So now it's like, do you want to invest all this time and effort you know, for the single shot. So I spend more time thinking, okay, I like this idea, but now how can I hedge my bets? So sometimes you, you know, come up with maybe a concept or an idea and you think, well, you know, I like this, but, you know, I don't know if this can really sell or this can really be palatable to right. be financed or anything. And then you sort of put that aside and maybe focus on something else. Or I'll take that idea and go, can I make it bigger? Can I add anything to it so I can still write that, have that part of it that I like, but put it into something that, you know, it's almost like I'm manipul trying to manipulate, manipulate the system. I'm just going, okay, so this is, this is what everybody seems to want. Can I give them what they want, but also have what I want to do? And, and maybe I can get the best of both worlds. So I always do that. Yeah. yeah. Sort of in that framework, uh, compared to sort of when you began and uh, throughout the 90s and the 2000s, uh, you know, what is your take on sort of how, you know, your role has changed over time in terms of how you pitch stuff, you know, how you function in the business? Is there sort of a drastic change you feel yeah, between I think that I, and now? 
I think it's a good, great question. I, I think it's much more business bottom line oriented. And look, everybody always wanted to make money. I mean, the bottom line was, is, is this movie going to make money? Or a television show or whatever it is. But now, you know, the studios used to be run, they were all, they were all very insulated. It was, you know, Paramount, Universal, Warner, the major studios. Yeah. And they were run by basically people who had been in the business a long time, and they wanted to make good films. But at the same time, also make money. And to make a profit, it, it, it was good enough to make, you know, uh, 15 million on, a, on the first weekend. And if a movie grossed 60 million dollars, 70 million dollars, that was good. And then if it, when you had DVD sales on top of that, yeah. that was good. But when the studios were then bought by these huge corporations, you know, Gulf and Western or what have you, or Comcast or whatever, you know, and, and movies started to, they realized they could make 100 million if it was a big enough idea. The bar was so high that all these companies are going, we don't want to make 50 million or 20 million or 80 million. We want to make, yeah. this is, we want to make half a billion dollars. So right there, <laughs> it, only certain ideas are going to be able to, you know, support that incredible. And ultimately less, uh, products to come out of those companies per year yeah so all i mean i remember when when we had our disney deal it was disney touchstone and hollywood pictures all three i think they were all collectively making 50 to 60 movies a year so you can go in there wow. and now i think 10 it's just disney and they make 10 yeah. and i remember it, at that time like the ideas were like all over the place like there was a variety like between all three of those banners like kids movies like adult dramas comedy you know everything yeah it was across the board yeah i mean if you don't go in with a, a it's, if you don't have a book, and that's the other thing, is that, that the executives now are very, they're very young, and they want to have, like, they want it to be pre-sold in a way. So if that's why if you go in with a book or, yeah. or some intellectual property, something that's already established that has a fan base, they, it makes them feel better, like they're, oh, you know, we're not starting from scratch. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good movie. But they think in their heads, you know, oh, well, we'll be able to squeeze out more yeah, bottom it's line. It's like an insurance policy on it, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems like there are less, like, the, the idea of, like, the original screenplay, something that's, like, completely from scratch, it doesn't really exist too much anymore in the studio world, or even sometimes in the independent world yeah. as well. It's true. Very t which is tough if you're a writer, because you that's all you have are your original ideas. I mean, I can't go buy a book and compete with... You know, a studio that has a, you know, a guys looking at all the titles and they have the money to buy the rights to some book. It's it's not going to happen. Yeah, um, I was curious. I remember we were talking before we started recording about sort of you know how you deal with representation, and you know I was curious, you know, if you have a manager or an agent, what is sort of the best way to get the most out of that relationship? Uh, do you think? Well, I have first of all, I have very, <laughs> I have. Uh, I've always had trouble with representation. I mean, I've sort of been at a lot of places, but it's only because I think, I look at it as a true business relationship. So like in other words, if I'm or somebody or you're creating a product, creative product, yeah. all I want that person to do is get it out there. And whether or not people like it or not, I just want it to get a fair shot. And so selling is a whole different thing than creating. So. And with representatives, the, the problem I have with representatives in the past and sometimes have now is that they they either part of the, they either want to become creative themselves, so there's a sell, sort of a they don't like the selling just aspect of it. They're looking at 
their their clients as ways to attach themselves as producers as producers yeah which is a natural thing but it really is a conflict of interest and because then they then they start giving notes as if they're creative people and, and everyone has notes but the thing is if you if you're if you're a um, uh, a representative and you have a client and you give them the wrong note hmm. it, it can really screw up the whole you know process and and so I, I, I just want them to follow through. So I, what I've had problems with in the past is that, you know, an agent may have, say, you know, 20, 30, 40 clients. So naturally, how can they possibly service 20, 30, 40 clients? Yeah. So, so Especially I, if you look at like a day, like on just any day, like how often are they? I mean, they can't possibly focus on all 30 clients in 24 hours or 10 hours they're in the office for. Yeah, impossible. You know, that's, yeah. And all these clients want work and they're saying, well, you know, get me a job. So I've always come from it like, okay, I'm going to make it as easy as possible for the representative. So I'm going to, I'm going to give them product. I'm going to have my own base of contacts. I'm going to write up, you know, emails saying, here's who I think we should go to. Can we just do this? And I give them almost the plan of what yeah. to do. Like, let's call these guys. Let's say, what do you think? As opposed to leaving it all up to the manager and saying who we should reach out to, production companies, producers, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. I might even say, give me a list of all the writing assignments. I'll pick the you know five or six I think that are a natural fit, and you know, and then you know, just get me in the room. That's all I ever ask. Yeah. Get me in the room. I'll do the rest. So when then that's not fulfilled, because they have too many clients or they didn't follow through or whatever, that's when I have problems. Or they want to be involved with like you know they want to produce the thing that you're involved with. So it's always a it's a slippery slope for, for me, but you need them, you know, because... Do you ever feel like, well, you know, I could do the same work that the manager is doing in a way? Like, I could, you know, reach out to... Like, I've talked to writers and different people. They're like, well, you know, maybe I'll just, you know, they were frustrated with their representative at one point. Like, well, I'll just, I'll reach out to this person just behind, like... Yeah, I don't think... <laughs> I, th I, I, I think I get most of my work myself. Yeah. So I kind of tee up the, like, I'll call the... You know, I'll find out what the, if there's a project I want to do or a producer I want to work with or something. Uh, you know, nowadays it used to be you go in and have meetings. Now I'd send an email, try and connect with them, and then I get them interested, and then I'd say, call the agent or the my manager, whoever it is, and I'd say, uh, okay, I just spoke with this guy. They're going to call you. Here's what it's about. This is what I need to do, and I'm hoping they're going to be able to then. You know, yeah. You know, so yeah, it's it's. But Is that it, tricky to navigate too? Especially like you're starting something, then sort of you have to wait for like manager approval in a way. Is that? Ma it's maddening. <laughs> I, that's all I can say. I hate it. That's the one thing I, I hate being the middleman in this business. I hate having to rely on somebody else. Uh, and this may be a flaw of mine, by the way. I'm not telling any everyone to, but I have a hard time relying on somebody else to you know, tell me what's going on. Because I, I feel like no one can do as good a job as I would do on my own. I mean, even on this new movie, this action movie I'm doing, you call up, you have these names of actors that life, love the material. And then you talk to the agents and they go, he doesn't mean anything. Even though they've done great movies because they just don't mean anything foreign-wise or finance, yeah. so they cannot trigger financing. And that's, that's been a real wake-up call for me because these are guys that I would think, you know, well, these are award-winning 
actors that have been in great movies, but there's very few that actually mean anything. Yeah. I think now them. there's like a foreign sales uh, sort of calculator or, so, or thing that they run the actor through. They go, okay, here are, here's every territory in the world and here's their history from every movie. And if it doesn't reach a th certain threshold, they can't pre-sell it to those territories. That was a, that's what happened with this gone. one. They gave, me a, they gave me a list. Here are the six guys, the A-list six guys that we need to trigger this much money. Here's the B-list guys that would trigger. So it was like... Now by triggering that money, do you mean sort of like the foreign pre-sale aspect or what, equity or just anything? What you general? just said, like they would say, originally when uh, I would give them my whole... Here are the guys who I think are perfect for the role. And yeah. from those lists came, they gave us A, B, and C lists of, you know, these are the names or combination of, of names that will trigger a $50 million budget. These are the combination of names or single names that will trigger a $25 million movie, all the way down to like a $10 million movie. And I was just like, it was like an algorithm. Yeah. And I was just going, really? And some of them were like amazing, like you, you wouldn't think that these names, the most bizarre names you'd heard of, but they, I didn't know where they got them from, but I guess it's what you're saying, which is they have historical calculations. Yeah, no, it's, it's tricky to navigate. Yeah. Um, what are you working on right now? That's, uh, so I'm doing this, this one movie, uh, this one action movie that uh, I'm doing with Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who, produced uh, Transformers and The Matrix and he's a really good guy I like him he's smart he's probably one of the top five or six producers in town who can actually who are actually making movies and he's and he's he's he believes in the project he believes in me which is a huge thing I don't think I'd be able to direct it if it wasn't for him so I really like that and then I finished another action I don't think I'll ever write a comedy again by the way like I, I love really? I, these action thrillers that I, I'm doing now that I love these. And are these like uh, completely original screenplays? Completely or? original. Ah. So I, I, I've, I finished the second screenplay, which is ready to go. I wrote two pilots that are very dark, intense pilots. That, so I, I'm really liking the material now. And, and it, the response has been really great across the board. But again, the business part of it is not fun because even with TV, it's not enough to have a great script. I really have to attach an actor to it, so I have to get some, and it has to be- Before you ever go in to pitch it, you have to attach, it's, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and even then, it, it, they, they even want actors that, you know, the best thing is if you can get a feature actor that, want, that wants to do TV. Then, then they'll. If, if I, if you have two scripts and one script is extraordinary and one script is just really good, and you have a the right actor for the just a really good one, and and no actor or okay actor with the extraordinary script, most times they're going to go for the less good script because they want that insurance of the uh, the, the the actor. Uh, do you find that now because there's like all these other streaming platforms and TV seems to be so such a big thing? I mean, does that seem like it's sort of a, a new market, like it's more open to opportunities or is it? Yeah, I think it's, well, first of all, everyone's flooding into television. So it, it, interestingly enough, features is actually kind of a neat place because there's not that many people doing features as many. So it's a little bit more open. But by the same token, um, um, you know, people are binge watching now, and so 
it's a different thing. It's not like there's there's a real distinction between network television, which is pretty low rent. I mean, <laughs> network TV is not that great. I mean, unless you have a procedural, you know, that's going to be on CBS or whatever. The other stuff's pretty pretty. The bar is pretty low. There's yeah. There's a. T I think there's way more platforms and buyers if you have an idea. Yeah. But. Um, the idea, yeah, I think it's a wild west out there. I think it can be any format. It can be any. They're even experimenting with time length. I mean, some some episodes of the same series is one might be sixty three minutes, next one might be eighty two minutes, and then one might be forty five because it's not contingent on yeah. time anymore, so to speak. Because you can get stuff off Netflix, and, and who would have thought? <laughs> I mean, when Netflix, which used to just be the red envelope thing. Yeah, just a DVD in DVD. the mail, that was it. When that first, when they said, oh, Netflix is going to go into, you know, uh, uh, creating a network, I thought that was a joke. I thought there's no <laughs> way. And now that's the place to be. Like, yeah, so people aren't buying DVD players anymore. They're buying these streaming devices for their TV. Yeah. And everything is internet-based. So now we have Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. I Crackle, think, that's another one. And that's going to be the, like, I don't think there's going to be TVs, you know, in the near future. I think people are... I, yeah. I, the, and now people can subscribe to HBO just through the internet. They don't even need a cable subscription. So yeah. that's the end of that. Yeah, it's going to be... It's going to be <laughs> so if you're a creator, yeah, you got more... It, it, there's a bigger landscape, but then you also have more people that are going in who aren't, who haven't honed their craft either. So there's a lot of, like, you see a lot of series where there's a good, you know, the pilot may be interesting or... There's a lot of hype around it, but they're really not. It's, it, there's more people doing it, but there's also yeah. less people that have, you know, honed their craft or, or learned their chops. So it's just it's kind of like I think there's going to be a weeding out process. Yeah, I feel like the parameters really haven't been developed yet. It's still sort of in that growth phase. Yeah. You know, I think it'll be a few years before it's really you know solid in terms of how they want to develop certain things. Like Amazon even like throws out pilots for things that aren't even picked up as a full series. Yeah. Which is an interesting way to go. Yeah, and Amazon's becoming a big player too, but they're fun, trying to find, I mean, every week I hear a different thing, what they're looking for, you know, they want that, and then next week it's like, no, that we don't want that anymore, we want this. And I think they're trying to find, you know, you know, what's their actual brand kind of thing. But I, I still think it comes down to content will always be king. I think if something's really good, yeah. and you've got good people around it, it's going to find its way to an audience because it's good. And I think it's very easy in today's fast, you know, turnaround world where you, you know, people are very quick to uh, to uh, tote things as being very good and they're also very quick to cut things down. I think you get a lot of crap out there that's gonna be very transitory and the thing is not to be overwhelmed by the sheer amount of it or the hype of, of stuff because yeah. it can I think that's something that really ruins anything you know even if something is of good quality I think sometimes there's so much hype around it you go in with these expectations and then if they're not met exactly it's what you think it is people just tend to reject it yeah I mean, I mean imagine if I set you up with a girl and I go this guy is the perfect human <laughs> being he's never done anything I mean to the point where she meets you and she, you can't go anywhere but down yeah, <laughs> because you couldn't. You, you may be able to do one or two things to, you know, uh, uh, to make that uh, what I said about you uh, accurate. But for the most part, you're gonna. It's, it's you're just gonna be struggling to stay stay as that guy. Yeah, that's true. So it's that. There's just so much noise out there. Yeah. In the social media realm too. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, lastly, I know um, you teach a class, and I was just curious, you know, what you like to, you know, pass on to your students in a way about the business, about screenwriting. Yeah, well, you actually spoke in our class uh, a couple weeks ago, and you were great. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a UCLA film class. Um, I actually love it because I, the the kids are well, they're not kids, but they're. I think of them as kids, but they're so enthusiastic, they're relentless, they've got tons of hope. I try to teach them not so much practical elements, although we talk about stuff, but I try to give them a realistic view of what the world is they're going into. So they're not intimidated, they're not putting it on a pedestal of what they think, because often they look at the entertainment business as something that it isn't, and so they think think of it as being too magical or too hard to get into, or too. And it's actually quite simple. It, there's nobody really knows anything. There's nobody who has any crystal ball. Yeah. Uh, you know, making a movie, making a TV show, it's pretty basic stuff. I mean, when you think about it, it's still a camera, it's lights. There's no magic to it. It's a good story. So I try to take the, I try to convey to them that break it down so, so that they understand that a story is just a story you know there's all these books you know they, they love to read books and these things about you know screenplay structure and it goes on, and on. but really it's it's just a simple it's like telling your friend a good story and if it's a good story they're going to be engaged and if it isn't there's a reason why but and you know i just try to give them the good and the bad so that they're they think about it and so and they could go into it with realistic expectations as opposed to you know, going in there and saying, oh, you know, uh, I'm so great, or here's the business is unbelievable, it's so hard to get into, or it's so, because it isn't, it's just, you know, and if they really have a, want to do it because they enjoy it, then, you know, there's a, there's a career in it for them, because I believe that, so yeah. it's more of a discussion, like a back and forth, and I think they really like it, um, so. Yeah, that's what I enjoyed quite a bit about the format, too, it seems like it's very open to sort of, they ask questions, they really want to be engaged with what's going on, it's not just sort of like a, like a big lecture, like, you know, this is what the entertainment industry is. XYZ. Yeah, it's like when you, when you were there, they, I think they really, when you left, they loved it, and I asked them, what is it you liked about it? And it's like, they got to ask you questions, and you answered about what your world is like, what is it you're, you're doing, what do you find? And yeah. so they see your point of view. It's more of a first-person experience as opposed to just sort of a theoretical... Uh, yeah. Yeah. And your point of view is different than mine. But I got stuff out of your point of view. I go, oh, that's, yeah, I didn't. And you tell me how, you know, because you do all, you meet all these, you know, very successful people and you have a point of view about, you speak to them and you get close to them and you, and that's important because I, I, as a director, you go, oh, I, that's interesting. I didn't know that, you know. And so it's, it's educational for everyone. 